think doing your own work and being self-aware is so important in leadership for us to know or have a sense of what our, our learnings are in our areas of growth and being vulnerable enough to share that some with our teams to let them know that we're all, this is all a work in progress. I certainly know I don't have all the answers. The traditional bargain is, you know, for capital, we'll we'll get you into the middle class, we'll we'll take care of your benefits, we'll do all these things for you. You just operate as sort of a cog in the system by helping us do whatever it is we do. So the bargain's shifting now where people are saying, No, I have way more agency now. I know that I have gifts and skills that can be operated and implemented wherever I am. So now we're seeing this shift, right? So the great resignation is not really a resignation, it's really a reassessment. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. And I'm your host, Hannah Warren. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of the Living Centered Podcast. Today, Lindsay and I sit down for a master level class in leadership with leadership consultant, Dr. Ed Barron and Onsite's VP of Entertainment and Specialized Services, Debbie Carroll. They've both been on the podcast before and I'm so excited to have them back together. As you'll hear, they have a fun on-site connection as they're both on-site alumni and facilitators within our first ever digital leadership course, the Emotionally Smart Leadership Framework, out now. It's a holistic approach to leadership that allows you to create the best outcomes and experiences for your team members and those you serve. In this interview, we spent some time asking your pressing leadership questions, having polled our Instagram audience, digging deep into the shifts and trends that we're seeing in this space, and honestly just having an authentic conversation about the importance of bringing our emotions into the leadership space. It is an incredible conversation, and I think a must for anyone that calls himself a leader. I can't wait to do it again. We talked at the end about having a part two, and I think it's going to be pretty essential. So without further ado, let's dig into this conversation with Dr. Ed Barron and Debbie Carroll. Welcome, everyone. I'm so excited about today's conversation. I have been looking forward to it all week because uh, I basically just get an hour to sit down with three of my favorite people uh, and three of my favorite leaders. So Lindsay is co-hosting with me today, and then we have on-site VP of Entertainment and Specialized Services, Debbie Carroll, and the incredible leadership consultant, Dr. Ed Barron. And so thank you guys for joining us. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Mackenzie and I were just talking about like you know, leadership and in light of the launch of our Emotionally Smart Leadership Framework course, wanting to have a conversation on the podcast. And I quickly brought up your two names as two of my Mm -hmm. favorite leaders, people that I've learned so much about. And what I think is so outstanding about y'all's leadership is that you come at it both from like a practitioner lens, but also as a constant learner and grower and that you are willing to like lean in and do your own work and continue to improve. And I think when we model that as leaders, that it is contagious, and then our teams are better for it. So I just want to say that I love getting to watch a lead close up and far away, but I've learned so much from both of you. So excited for the listeners to learn from you today. Very gracious of you, by the way, Lindsay. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, agreed. And this is going to be fun. Yeah, a lot of fun. 
Yeah, I got to have Debbie as a co-host a little bit ago, and so it was a really fun conversation, too. I'm just excited to see what you bring to us today. Before we get started, can you guys kind of give us a glimpse of how you guys know each other and why you love so much about this emotionally well space um, when it comes to leadership and why you think that work's important? I would like Debbie to go first because I, I want to really hear what she says about me. So Yeah, you're ready to hear her brag about you. You'll get the gift of going second. <laughs> Which is going to be glowing, of course. So um, yes. I was fortunate to get to know Dr. Ed through the Emotionally Smart Leadership Program, the, the launch at Onsite, mm-hmm. gosh, what, a year ago? And Yeah, a year ago. It, we were, yeah, which is hard to believe. But we were fortunate to be in the same group, and I immediately gravitated as as I think everyone, and I think that's a fair assessment, everyone did um, towards Dr. Ed and his his kindness, his curiosity, his approach to leadership and also approach to personal wellness and growth was just so inviting for the rest of us to really jump in and feel comfortable about being in that space as well as leaders and doing our own work in that regard. And really, it was such an unknown. I, I remember driving up and I was talking to a few friends when I was driving to onsite that day. And I was like, somebody said to me, what are you doing? And I said, well, <laughs> so excited about this. Yet there was also an element of angst and, and just anxiety around, okay, this is not going to be just a leadership retreat per se. We're going to get into our stuff, which is great and was was powerful and and such an amazing experience, but certainly Dr. Ed was a huge part of that experience. And I just feel so fortunate to have gotten to know you and look forward to more. Incredible. Okay. So it's my turn. So let me preface by saying that I'm a big college football (laughs) fan. And, and, and if you, if you're familiar with college football at all, you know, their overtime rule is each team gets a chance to score. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a different format, but the, strategy is to not go first. You want your opponent to go first to see if they score a touchdown on the field goal. So then that way, when you get the ball, you can determine what you need to do. That's why I let Debbie mm. go first. So now I get to determine where the bar is for that introduction. <laughs> Debbie, th- th- thank you. Um, th- there, are, there are a lot of places I can take this, but I'll, I'll, I'll say this. We had an amazing group of folks at the ESL mm. pilot, we, we came in, like Debbie said, not knowing what to expect and uh, having had some experience at onsite going through Living Centered, I kind of knew that part of it. But this is sort of a mashup, right, between a leadership seminar and Living Centered. Uh, how deep do you go and, and what, what are the bonds going to be and what do you bring and all this kind of stuff, knowing that we're going to do some work. Well, something happened on maybe day two of uh, our engagement. We were sitting out on the patio out behind the bookstore, and Debbie made a statement that that grabbed my heart, shook my soul, caused me to lean mm-hmm. in. I'm going to paraphrase because we use colorful language, right, when we're when we're working on that <laughs> stuff. But yeah. Debbie said something that something to the effect of, "You can tell me to buzz off, but just don't ignore me." Mm-hmm. Now, she didn't say buzz off, but I'm going to let you use your imagination of what she <laughs> might have said in that scenario. And when she said that, I thought, how salient is that statement? Because it really mm-hmm. gets at all of our needs to be seen, heard, and valued. Yeah. And you can say what you, but, but if you say something to me, it really indicates that at least you see me enough to be angry yeah. or to be disrespectful. 
but to just ignore me. And so that stuck with me. And it, obviously, I still remember it to this day. And I thought, this is a special person to have that kind of insight. Her gift, in my estimation, is what I call like a gift of amalgamation. Debbie can make sense out of a lot of things yeah, and bring that sense making into the situation, the group, and it benefits everyone. Uh, so she's simply one of my favorite people on planet Earth and glad to be here sharing uh, what we may know about leadership with those that may be listening to us today. One I love so much that, of what y'all shared, one of the kind of foundations of emotionally smart leadership and the emotionally smart leadership framework is the idea that we become better leaders by becoming better human beings. <laughs> and I would be curious how, you know, the work that you've done at Onsite, other therapeutic work has influenced and even improved or helped you leverage your leadership abilities? That's right. I'll go first. But now, now moving forward, I'm not going to do that. You don't give them the advantage. Right. I think you know, doing your own work and being self-aware is so important in leadership for us to know mm-hmm. or have a sense of what our, our learnings are in our areas of growth and yeah. being vulnerable enough to share that some with our teams to let them know that we're all, this is all a work in progress. I certainly know I don't have all the answers and appreciate the the team dynamic and the team process to get to an end result and to try things. And sometimes, you, you know, you're trying something and you have to pivot and move in a different direction. But constantly being a learner and improving ourselves and becoming more self-aware only helps one with our our personal lives and having a a rich, more fulfilling personal life, but also a professional life. And I feel like I I talk a lot of late about post-pandemic and Mm -hmm. that, Lindsay, thank you so much for you forwarded um, one of Renee's recent podcasts, which I listened to yesterday, and that really the way we approach leadership has completely changed. And if we don't adapt and change and try to approach it mm. in the same way that we did pre-pandemic. We're one, we're losing an amazing opportunity, but two, I don't think that that teams are will will stand for that any longer. Yeah. And so really all that we've learned prior to the pandemic and as as we continue to learn and grow as leaders will help us post-pandemic with building trust and and really being available to our team members regardless of what they bring to the table because we've all experienced so much during the pandemic. And so how do we recreate that level of trust with our teams moving forward in order to get the job done? So, but again, that learning and growing is just so key to every part of our our lives, particularly leadership. It's good. Yeah. You know, I I think Onsite has been onto something for some time. and, And in some respects, you've been ahead of the curve. I'm going to say we, right? We've been ahead of the curve yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of exploring the value of our humanity, mm-hmm. which interestingly enough, has not been something that's really, really been valued in the workplace. Talent, yes, right? Whole self, not yeah. necessarily. And there hasn't been room for that, right? It's, there's, there's, there's been 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 sort of ages and eras in our work history where talent was valued over all of who we are, as if you could separate those two, by the way, which you can't. Yeah. 
So I think what's happening right now in, we'll call it the workplace, is that the workplace is now catching up by virtue of circumstance, post-pandemic, or pandemic, not post-pandemic, where they're recognizing, uh, Lindsay, the reality that better humans are better leaders and better employers and better friends, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, having that validated, because I think I've always sort of vibed that way. It just wasn't necessarily valued and couldn't be expressed. And when I was validated, if you will, when that idea was validated during my time at Onsite several years ago, I began to lead more boldly in that area. So, so you all know that there are just as many definitions for leadership as people who attempt to define leadership because owing to the fact that it's so individual, yeah. it's circumstantial, it's situational, there are traits, certainly, but we bring our individuality and our ability to influence a group of people towards the accomplishment of a common goal. It's my definition mm-hmm. of leadership, right? Influence a group of people towards the accomplishment of a common goal. But the key word is influence. Yeah. And you're able to do that. Debbie, you, you probably said the word trust two or three times uh, a moment mm-hmm. ago. For us to be able to influence authentically requires a deep level of trust, which is birthed out of sort of an a empathic connection between people. And you just can't get there. You can't get there without some measure of wholeness. And so I, I'm glad. And, and, you know, I think, Lindsay, you mentioned Brene Brown a, a minute ago. I'm glad Brene is really in the, I'll call it the business space now, as opposed to the, you know, women's enrichment space that she occupied for quite mm-hmm. a while. But broadening to help leaders understand this is just a different time and a different season. And for the, for the leaders that can grasp that, their ability to lead high-performance teams for sustainable periods of time is going to be enhanced. So, so I hope, I hope the fuse that's been lit causes an explosion that'll benefit um, those who are trying to make a difference in the world. Yeah, you both kind of mentioned like that post-pandemic world, and I wonder. Is it that the needs have changed or are we just catching up to it? Are the is the need to show up as a wholehearted leader and to do that not at the expense of our humanity to lead forward with talent, but also bring everything else that we, you know what I mean, kind of self, bring ourselves into the workplace? Are employees demanding that or was that need always there and we weren't actually providing that? That I just would love your perspective on that. I'll get us started and then I'll, I'll yield the mic. I think the answer to all of them is yes, right? I think the need yeah. has always been there. Hasn't been hasn't been val- validated, or at least hasn't been appreciated. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, uh, the pandemic gave us a chance to look behind the curtain. People working mm-hmm. remotely, seeing that people could still be productive, that productivity levels were actually increasing and not decreasing. Agency, yeah. which is something we need to, you know, job control and agency, whether you're at home or in the office, is something that contributes to our well-being. And so, the pandemic allowed for a clearer sort of view mm-hmm. of what's always been a reality. What we see happening now, McKinsey, is this sort of a shift in what I'll call the bargain between capital and labor, right? The mm-hmm. traditional bargain is, you know, for capital, we'll, we'll get you into the middle class. We'll, we'll take care of your benefits. We'll do all these things for you. You just operate as sort of a cog in the system by helping us do whatever it is we do. So the bargain's mm-hmm. shifting now where people are saying, no, I have way more agency now. I know that I have gifts and skills that can be operated and implemented wherever I am. So now we're seeing this shift, right? So the great resignation is not really a resignation. Mm. It's really a reassessment, right? Yeah. Where labor is saying, 
uh, we have a little bit more, yeah, we have a little bit more agency and control over how we sort of apply our gifts. And, uh, but certainly it's all owing, in my opinion, to the pandemic because it shifted this old industrial model that we had of coming to the office, work eight to five, get your benefits and your paycheck and be happy and go home. Yeah. Kind of expanded our view of that. Mm. That's really interesting. Sure. Yeah, I would completely agree that I think it's a little bit of both that that we're we're catching up to the need that's always been there, but that we really haven't paid attention to. You know, as Ed said, that I feel I'm you know thinking back about when I started my career, it felt very much that you leave your personal issues and and struggles at home, and that you get in, you do the work the task at hand is defined and you're either in the boat or you're not. And there wasn't a whole lot of discussion Mm -hmm. around process or different feelings around the direction that you're going in. And I I do feel like I always led a little bit more from the heart um, because I just think that's where I am and that really getting to know the people on your team and valuing and seeing them and respecting their voices and opinions. The the end result may be different in terms of what their opinion may be, but yet you still listen and, and see them. And that's what leads to trust. And also that leads to productivity and that leads to results. So, mm. and now I do think, as you mentioned, Ed, that the great resignation, people are reevaluating what they need and what they want. And toxic yeah. cultures are no longer tolerated. People are leaving yeah. in droves and saying, this worked for me for a while, but I'm no longer respected, my voice isn't heard, and I'm willing to do make a major move to be in a different environment where yeah. I'm able to make a different impact. And so I hope that that melding of, you know, all of the values that we bring as a, in, as a human, we bring into our work culture and those continue to be seen, heard, and, and validated. Yeah. Because I, I just think also the younger generation, too, won't tolerate, and it's wonderful, they won't tolerate the, here's where we're going and here's what we're doing and, you know, just be happy that you're getting a paycheck and yeah. you know, end a story. You mentioned um, that interview with Brene Brown, Simon Sinek, and Adam Grant. And I think Adam said in that interview that people during the Great Resignation left to- what they labeled as toxic cultures at 10 times the rate of anywhere else. And so... What makes a culture toxic? What makes it unsafe? What are some of the things that you've seen in your own experience, both as a practitioner and a learner? Yeah, I think that I'll say that the that toxicity can be varied according to the individual. I mean, what I view as toxic may be different than what somebody else views as toxic. Yeah. But certainly you know, elements of, of respect and, and integrity. And I use that word a lot and I realize that I do, but it's so important to me. And yet... It's used so much that I think it the the word can be not taken as seriously as as it should be, but that when integrity slips, in my opinion, um, in the workplace, then that creates a toxic culture. You know, if you're not adhering to your hmm. your sense of value um, and what's important to you as an individual, then it's going to be really hard to show up and work at work every day. And one of the things Bernay said that really resonated with me during that that podcast was about trust and how Zoom you can't have that sense of trust via Zoom. And yet, even if you've been working with the same culture and same team for a long period of time, the two years of the pandemic, 
in the Zoom culture didn't allow for the those opportunities, you know, the the water cooler conversations and the how's your mom doing and you know, all of the human elements and touch points that really does help build trust. That really caused me to pause and think about that more. And that, you know, moving forward, that's a big piece of rebuilding that collaboration through trust to achieve goals. I'll say this about toxicity, and I agree, Debbie, it kind of depends on a number of factors, right? Background, experience, et cetera. But here's one thing that's true about toxicity. It's not toxic until it gets into the ecosystem. Mm. When it gets into the ecosystem and starts impacting and affecting everyone, that's a toxic workplace, right? If I've got a couple of people that are not satisfied or that are disillusioned or whatever, that's going to happen. But when it gets into the ecosystem, which is the culture, and starts to impact the entire organization, then that's toxic. Certainly, people have varying levels of tolerance for whatever it is. But when it's prevalent, it's it's toxic. What are like examples of things that and and how does that begin to spread and really like take hold in the workplace that makes it toxic? Yeah, I can think of a couple things, and I'll, I'll kind of base it on the kind of the general idea of psychological safety, right? Oh yeah. So you'll hear people say that I don't feel safe. I don't, and I'm I'm not belittling that, but I like to kind of qualify what what safe actually means. And so we'll start with being psychologically safe, which is basically the belief that you won't be punished or retaliated against for honest critique, for making mistakes, for challenging, in other words, bringing your whole self, right? In a culture where it is deemed unpopular, usually by observed actions, that it's not popular to challenge, that it's not possible to stand up and state your opinion. It's, Mistakes aren't tolerated, even though you have permission to fail. Yeah, but don't you dare do that, right? Nobody, nobody wants to test that sort of idea. Those are the kinds of things that now start getting into the ecosystem. And so you have sort of a learned behavior on the part of the team that become risk averse. They become um, cozy with their candor, if you will. Yep. And it's usually modeled by leadership, which is what makes leadership so important. Uh, the vulnerability isn't there. Those are some of the things that can cause a toxic culture. Now, that didn't sound a whole lot like, you know, sexual abuse and and racism or sexual harassment and racism. Those, yeah, those things can cause a toxic workplace, but it doesn't need to be that that extreme, if you will. A lot of times it's more subtle, which oftentimes goes undiagnosed and causes a much sort of slower demise of the organization. Yeah, that's a great example. I do feel like I've, you know, worked in cultures where people wouldn't say the thing, you know, and that Mm -hmm. in the hope of being nice or not creating conflict, that things would go unsaid and kind of fester. And then there would be conversations after meetings around it and things like that. And that is, you know, it spreads quickly Mm. when that's the case. How do you start to like tackle that? Like, how do you start to make people feel safer to speak up in meetings? The idea of culture just, it it literally fascinates me. So the word culture comes from the Latin word cultus. And you can hear the word cult in there and get a little bit spooked when you hear that, right? But think about what cults do. They, They create an environment and a sense of belonging where you feel cared for, whether that's a gang or religious cult or whatever. The idea is I feel feel cared for cared for 
That's what culture, that's what cultus means to care for. And so if you think about how you care for people, maybe how you want to be cared for, uh, it's really a leadership responsibility to begin to set that tone. So I, I tell folks I work with all the time, especially leaders, be the change you want to see. Start living the culture that you want to grow. So what does that look like? You know, it looks like um, exercising vulnerability. Brene Brown would almost use courage synonymously with vulnerability, right? If you want to your teams to really challenge ideas and be forthright, start living that, start showing that. There's very few things in life more powerful than sort of lived observation. When I see you doing something, it's no longer what you say, it's what you do. By the way, I say about culture all the time, culture is not what you say. It is never what you say, it's what you do. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that those things can be aligned, you'll begin to see a shift. So start with, Start with being the change you want to see, being vulnerable, yeah. being critical, failing and admit, admitting that you're failing. And, and don't be too hung up on oversharing. Oversharing has more to do with, yeah, the whole personal thing, right? But as it relates to work, don't be afraid to go there. Yeah, I, I, I love that. Um, I also will say that really learning what your team members need um, because what I may need from a leader could be markedly different than what one of my team members needs. And so really adapting to what those needs are for those individuals. And that can be a little bit uncomfortable. At least it has been for me in the past um, in that giving something that I don't necessarily need, for example, a significant amount of praise. There's some people that need a lot of reassurance that what they're doing is really great and they're moving in the right direction. And Others don't need so much of that. And so really adapting to those needs of the team members so they're seen and, and heard. Also say I've seen in a lot of cultures where people will grab power by taking someone else's work and claiming it as their own. For whatever reason, that's a huge pet peeve of mine. And really giving credit where credit's due and celebrating the, the small wins in addition to the larger wins. I was talking to a sports person the other day who talked about in the sports world, and Dr. Ed, you may know this better than I do, but they call them receipts. So that you have to gain a certain number of receipts to really gain the trust of an individual. And so, and I, I, I feel like that's the way it is with team members too, that you you build up certain number of receipts. So then when when you have to have a hard conversation, which we all do, and people have hard conversations with us, it, it's received in a different fashion because there's, um, they know it's coming from a place of caring and concern for that individual, yet just course correcting in real time about what needs to change and, and moving forward. Because we all stumble too. And, but those, those cultures that don't allow an individual to stumble and really come down on them, that, that also causes a significant amount of, of cultural tension and, and discomfort. Can I just mention that, that Debbie just modeled what we're talking about? Part of the way into her delivery there, she said, is something that I don't do well. Mm-hmm. She acknowledged that there's something that she doesn't do well. And when, she, and when you said that, Debbie, I felt this sort of, yeah, that's so true. I related to that. And so it doesn't have to be this magnanimous statement, a simple statement of, I don't do something well, or I'm trying to improve in an area from a leader goes a long way. So thank you for that. Absolutely. 
Hey friends, I hope that you've been loving this episode as much as I did. One of my biggest takeaways was the realization that this shift towards emotionally smart leadership doesn't just impact the morale and emotional well-being of our teams and ourselves, but actually the bottom line, productivity and goal outcomes that we're all seeking. The data's in, and EQ outpaces IQ 4 to 1. So, our newest offering was created to put your superpowers to work. We are thrilled to introduce you to our first ever digital leadership course. The Emotionally Smart Leadership Framework is a holistic approach to leadership that allows you to create the best outcomes and experiences for your team members and those you serve. Through video lessons from business and clinical experts, along with helpful supporting content and practical exercises, the Emotionally Smart Leadership Framework will not only strengthen your leadership acumen, but it has the potential to shift your leadership paradigm entirely. Learn from the comfort of your own space and engage with each lesson at your own pace. Head to EmotionallySmart.com to learn more. One of the things you said, Debbie, that sort of provoked a memory for me, I had a colleague that just, it felt like it was really, I think because the way we had started out interacting, it was really hard to earn their trust. And like over time, one of the things that was like the biggest breakthrough was they got sick and needed help in a different way. And so like showing up for them personally totally transformed our business dynamic. And it made me so grateful. I would have never guessed that was the thing that was going to sort of create this whole new dynamic in a relationship, but it did. It was like that person needed a receipt from me. I love that. And, And you were able to also see that and give that to them. So Sometimes we can miss those opportunities too, that they're there and, yeah. and really, you know, stepping into that, you know, to help that relationship, which is wonderful. Yeah. That's great. Mm. Yeah. I think even just hearing you say, Lindsay, about like building trust with this person and just that you were different and even Debbie saying some people need different things. Like when it comes to a group dynamic, how do you start to manage those different personalities and understand and cue into how people are led the best because I think just from my perspective I'm new in the leadership game and having direct reports and understanding how do you do that well that invites people to show up as their whole selves in a way that is marrying those two things of productivity and the whole person. One of the things I learned during the Emotionally Smart Leadership Program which I thought was just I, I loved it, but was really becoming curious about what it's like to be on the other side of you from mm, your team. That's good. And I surveyed my team and the feedback, you know, obviously kept the feedback and, and certainly really spent some time with it to listen. And, and one of the things one of my team members said was that for her, that my anxiety could be infectious. So when things were really stressful and I got in the weeds and we were in the weeds that she could feel my angst. I was like, that is so interesting. So really (laughs) like, okay. Um, And leaning into how I can approach that differently or at least approach her differently. I had no clue that that, first of all, that that could be seen as much, but yet again, there were moments where the, the, the work volume was just so intense that it was just, we've just Mm. moving forward to get the job done. So I think I will utilize that that tool 
moving forward. Um, Julie Smith, our, the CEO of, of OnSite, actually was the one that mentioned that during the Emotionally Smart Leadership Program. So really mm-hmm. looking for a blind spot. Yeah. Mm, yeah, that's good. And even around that example, because I definitely, my team probably would say that for me too, but getting better at like naming that I'm feeling anxiety or that I'm feeling overwhelmed and that there's a lot going on versus just sort of displaying anxiety probably is a game changer for the team. Yes. Because yeah. then it's, good. it's like they can kind of step into it differently. We used to have a coworker that like every time things were building and there was a lot going on, they would kind of step into like levity. Mm. And I kind of was like, I want you to show up like that you feel this, like the weightiness of what's going on. But it was how their anxiety probably was showing up. And so I think even sometimes just giving language to it and being able Mm -hmm. to go, oh, me too, this is okay. How do we manage priorities? How do we step into the conversation? How do we bring voice to it instead of just loving it? letting it live and come out sideways. So, yeah, that's good. That's good. I had the opportunity years ago to work for a division one college football coach. This was after he coached who was a championship, a national championship coach, an extraordinary leader. And I, I asked him a question about player development because I, Mm -hmm. I saw the connection between leadership and, you know, kind of moving towards common goal. And so I asked him, I said, when, when these young men show up for spring camp, you know, all 80 of them, where do you start? He said, you know, great question, because some guys will show up having worked out consistently from the last snap of last year. Some guys will show up and they haven't touched a football, ran a lap or anything, right? So they're all over the place. Yeah. He said, so the first thing you do is do a set of sort of drills. You assess where they are. And you determine where your gaps are. And Debbie, you, you mentioned one of the things you did was you you gave your employees an assessment and evaluation, right? Some kind of a survey. So assessment's important. Then once you have your assessment, then you can design your approach to develop based on the specific needs. I don't think it's any different in the workplace, right? Sometimes sports tends to be a an example that's overlooked, but there's something that's in this sports dynamic that I think we can all learn from, and that's the power mm-hmm. of a shared goal. Having this mm-hmm. goal orientation. So if you know, once you do your, your evaluation through whatever survey instruments you want to use, and if the common goal is clear, you can do player development, employee development, mm-hmm. team development, vectored towards that common goal. But the key is, is a finding a way to do, like, like you said, McKenzie, getting at the needs of the individuals on your team as it relates, as it relates to the goal you're trying to accomplish. That's good. Does that make sense? So you're not, you're not getting too lost in the weeds of, of being a parent to your team member. They have to take personal responsibility too, but in as much as they've got a gap, performance, knowledge, skill, as it relates to moving towards that clear, common and compelling goal, that's then where you focus your attention in terms of, of, of meeting that developmental gap. I was just going to add to that. It's a fluid process too, because I also am sitting here thinking mm-hmm. that, you know, it, when your team feels solid, that feels so amazing. You're like, all right, we're all in, we're rowing the right direction. We got this. This is good. But then we all have outside lives and things come in, yeah. you know, we bring things into the table and it can shift the dynamics very quickly. So constantly you know, revisiting where people are and what they need and, and working on that common goal. 
because that that all-in attitude can shift on a dime. It can be there for two seconds, or it could, you know, there's mm-hmm. a, there could be a lot of longevity. But when even when one member of a team isn't on the boat, it creates all sorts of chaos internally. Yeah, I think it's um, funny that Dr. Ed said that you're not parenting them because some of the conversations that we've been having as a larger on-site leadership team, we've been walking through some leadership development stuff and we eat, sleep and breathe showing up as your whole self, being a human being, like that's who we want to be as leaders at on-site. But so often there's a fine line there and sometimes it can get a little misconstrued. And so we've been talking about what does it look like to bring your whole emotional adult to work instead of bringing your child self (laughs) Because you can come out of your emotions as like a child self, or you can come out of your emotions as a a fully formed adult. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes that's what gets misconstrued. And people think about this concept of coming and bringing emotions, quote unquote, into the workplace. We think about bringing those childlike emotions that are kind of all over the place. I haven't made sense of them. When you can come in as a leader and say, hey, I'm feeling anxiety around this. I'm not going to lead from that place of anxiety, but I'm just going to admit it. And then we're going to figure that out together rather than, like Lindsay was saying, just feeling it and not naming it. So I think that's just an interesting, I think it's interesting that you said from parenting the people around you, because how do you come as an adult, not a child? So, And I hesitated a little bit. You could probably tell before I used the word parent, because that could be triggering in some sense, right? And and I'm also aware that it can almost feel contradictory when we say bring your whole self, but but at the same time we're not going to parent you, right? Mm-hmm. So I like the distinction you made, Mackenzie, between bringing your adult whole self and your child whole self, but recognizing some people haven't made that that exchange or transition yeah. yet. So it's always helpful for leaders to have things in their leadership toolkit, right, like the emotional intelligence framework. That, that maybe from a developmental standpoint, there's a self-awareness piece that needs to be developed in a particular uh, team member. Because you can tell them all day to bring your adult self, but if they don't have the capacity to do that, it ain't going to happen. But they're still your employee. They're still your teammate. And so are there yeah. developmental opportunities within your learning and development structure that could leverage something like the emotional intelligence framework to move them from self, you know, developing self-awareness, moving to self-regulation and empathy, et cetera. So it is important, but you're right. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of a tightrope that leaders have to walk, but you got to walk it nonetheless. Well, and I feel like I didn't learn about that child self until I went to onsite after years of therapy, (laughs) other capacities. So really being able to stop and saying, how old do I feel right now when something is triggered and I can be six on occasion. So Hopefully not so much in the workplace, but I can't say with 100% conviction that that hasn't happened. So that's also a learning, too, that some people maybe aren't aware that they're in their six-year-old self or their 12-year-old yep. self. You yeah. often tell a story, Lindsay, uh, about like a, a conflict situation. And if you'd like to tell that, I can. I won't steal it from you. But I remember a moment of being in like a heated situation and I just wanted to get out, like I wanted to run. And that would maybe be my response as a child. And instead, like as a full adult, I have to sit in there. I have to refocus and say, okay, I'm here and I'm present to walk through this and not just, you know, hightail out of here. Um, But I can remember a very specific moment. For me, it was like there was some personality that anytime I had to have like a difficult conversation, 
I just avoided it Mm. forever. And then it just gets bigger and bigger and it's terrible, you know? And you're like, what is going on? And one day I was like, finally going to have to have the conversation. And I could like see myself as like an eight-year-old hiding under a desk was how I felt about having the conversation. Thankfully, I didn't like physically manifest that, (laughs) but it felt like that's where I was. And I'm like, how do I like talk to myself and like show up as the adult that I am and give myself what I need so that I can like be an adult and have the conversation with that person. And it's so much bigger in our heads, you know, Mm -hmm. than actually doing it. And so it just was like super helpful. And I agree. I would have never gotten there without onsite to like give me language Mm -hmm. and the, more of like the resourcing to begin to slow down and say like, what's going on inside myself in this moment? I didn't ever sort of have the thought to do that in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And, but I, gosh, we need to do that in the workplace Mm -hmm. to slow down and have a time in between a catalyst and a reaction where we can really think about like how we want to show up and who we want to be to the people around us. Mm -hmm. So good. One of the questions that we got, uh, we asked people on Instagram if they would submit some questions. And someone asked, what do I do as an organizational leader who has led codependently? Uh, I'm recognizing some codependent tendencies. Maybe they've started to do their own work and are recognizing some of these patterns that even we talked about, Lindsay, you know, the avoidance or for me wanting to eject out of hard situations. Like, how do we start to make those changes and not change the rules on our team, but do it in a healthy way. Because our teams know how to correspond with us when we're leading codependently. How do we start to make some of those shifts? Mm-hmm. I feel like you start one one step at a time. And, yeah. you know, and it can be uncomfortable because it's not, it's new and you're trying something new and it's a little clunky, but really taking those risks and jumping in. And that self-awareness is so important, too, to even realize that, wait a minute, maybe the way I've been leading is not as effective as it should be. And so let me mm. make some changes and some shifts. And hopefully that person has some significant support around them, whether it's a coach or a therapist or somebody who can help guide them through that as they're they're moving forward with that transition and making a difference. That's good. That is so big, Debbie. When we become aware of something, that is more of a victory, I think, than than we're aware of. I mean, the the fact that we can now see something that we didn't see before opens up myriad possibilities to change. And so my my first encouragement for those individuals would be celebrate the fact that you're aware. Because we can start beating ourselves up thinking, oh, my gosh, I've been ruining people's lives for all these years, leading codependently. No, let's not let's not focus on that. Focus on you're here now. Then I think the yeah. other thing that's helpful is to start sort of reassessing your motivation. So before, mm-hmm. if your motivation was to protect and hide and whatever whatever you were getting out of the codependent leadership struggles, we don't do anything without motivation. Everything we do is based on some mm-hmm. motivation. And so if we can get clear on that motivation and then switch your motivation. Is the motivation now to develop healthy workers, to meet our company objectives, to sell more, to buy more, whatever it is, begin now to let the new motivation inform future actions that will look markedly different from your sort of codependent-led actions. 
But I would say, like, one step at a, at a time, as Debbie said, celebrate the heck out of the fact that this epiphany has visited you in the way that you lead, because now you can make a change. There, there's a book that we recommend a lot in our programs called The Language of Letting Go, and it is mm. meditations mm. around codependency. They're so good. They're just each day has a different mm. uh, meditation. But one of them was about, you know, written from the author as a woman's point of view that her son's gerbil had like gotten out. And every day she would like, the gerbil would kind of like make a little appearance loose in their house and she would run after it and try to like chase it down and it would go back into hiding. And so she kind of continued the cycle. And then one day she just stopped chasing after the gerbil and it like, you know, like walked up to her and she could grab it and then she could put it back into the cage. And I was like, it is stuck with me. (laughs) Every day is a visual of what I do around codependency and even how it shows up in the workplace. You know, it's like so often what we need to do is like let go and realize that it's out of our control and like Mm -hmm. let it be and recognize our own lack of being able to be everything to everybody. Mm -hmm. And, And sometimes in that that's when everything like comes together and coalesces. Mm-hmm. I remember like sitting down with my therapist once and talking about a work situation. And they're like, what if you do nothing? <laughs> and I was like, well, how do I do that? <laughs> you know, it was what? like we ended up in the cycle around like, oh, can you tell me step by step about how I don't do how anything? I do nothing. <laughs> and, Cause it, that was like such a big learning for me. And, and sometimes it really is around like, just like letting things be in a different way than we've ever let them mm-hmm. be before. That's that so, so good. So great, Lindsay. I certainly can. That certainly resonates with me. Um, it's like, wait a minute, just be still. I'm like, well, how do you do that? <laughs> how does yeah. that work? Yeah. And yet, yeah. How do I? How do I do nothing? Yeah. 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 I think so many leaders struggle with that. You know, it's like that we've gotten sure. places because we've done and done and done and done. But uh, mm-hmm. we talk in emotionally smart leadership about like human beings versus human doings and the importance yeah. of that. And how can we be like leaders being instead of leaders doing mm-hmm. all the time? Yeah. So, yeah. It's so hard. I jokingly say that I have made a career. on being someone who can find the answer if I don't know it, because I really have like, I've gotten really good at just Googling and being known as someone who will find the answer. And so the idea of saying I don't know and leading out in that mm. is really uncomfortable for me. And so I think one of those areas that I try to like control around is when there's change or transition or, you know, personal or professional. So I'd love to just talk as we kind of round out like around transition and how we do that well uh, within our team, within our own selves and all of that. How do we not control and just show up and control we can all that like what does transitioning well look like for our team debbie you don't know anything about this right now do you (laughs) no you're not at all in a massive transition and i'm learning daily so i will say that too and which is just because i'm sort of laughing like how do you do it well i'm like i don't know um yeah just do it easily that the process is for me going through a major transition has been different than i anticipated and yet there's so many learnings and growth opportunities just in that, in pausing in that, and for me, reevaluating that and, and looking at just different pieces of, of that transition. And 
and providing a lot of grace, which I, I'm not, there are moments where I'm great at that and there are other moments that I'm not. Um, and so I want to rush through things and get to the other side. Honestly, I said to somebody the other day, I was like, well, isn't it time that we, I move on or I, you know, this, that I'm in a different place. And yet there's, there are learnings in that too. The, the time yeah. is your own time and there is no specific time limit yet. I also believe transitions, we're all experiencing transitions right now. Mm-hmm. I keep going back to the pandemic, but I feel like the the residual effects of the pandemic, it's going to be felt for probably decades. And so yeah. given that we're all realigning, really that stillness, honestly, is such an important place to be where you were, for me, stopping long enough to kind of evaluate where I am because I can fill up my time and space very quickly, all sorts of things, um, and particularly in the work world. So really allowing the freedom to have some space and some quiet to just evaluate kind of where I am and how I am, honestly. Mm, yeah. That's good. Yeah, that is good. Thanks, Debbie. <laughs> needed yeah. to hear that. <laughs> right, right, a therapy moment, right? <laughs> I like to distinguish in my own life between change and transition. Change being an event, mm-hmm. whether the event is voluntary or involuntary, you make a decision to pursue a different career path or somebody makes that decision for you, but that's the change moment. What happens after that is the transition, right? It's the letting go of what mm-hmm. was, even though you may have not yet fully sort of laid hold to what's going to be, right? Uh, and so there's that, it's that liminal space between the two. And oftentimes, there's a, almost a mm-hmm. grieving process that takes place when you leave the one when the other one hasn't been fully birthed yet. And so allowing yourself to go through that the, the, the process of grieving, uh, again, the key mm-hmm. is having a vision, having your, an eye on the prize so that that continues to motivate you, so that continues to drive you forward. I don't know, Debbie, you probably will remember the old variety shows that used to come on when we were younger. And there was this group called the Flying Walendas. They flew on trapeze. They were high-flying trapeze artists. And I used to love watching that as a kid because you'd have the one person going back and forth on the trapeze and another person hanging by their their, their knees, if you will, or their legs, swinging back and forth. And the idea was for the first person to let go, to let go, and that's the change moment. You have to let go. Then you fly through the air, as the saying goes, with the greatest of ease, hoping, Mm. trusting, believing that you're going to land on the other end and be secure. Mm. The the, the transition is that part between the letting go and the grabbing hold. You can't go back. You can't. You can try. You can think about it, but it's not going to work. So transition is that is that period in between and. And hmm. you're you're wise, Debbie, to keep going back to the pandemic because it's the first time in our in our lifetime that the world ha- the world has a shared experience. Hmm. The world, not just a small group right. of people, not a race, not a culture, not a nation. The entire world has a shared experience, and that's what we're all trying to navigate now. How do we make sense out of this hmm. out of this new world? Yeah. We're all hoping we land on the other side. It exactly. still feels like we're flying through the air. Yeah. A bit, to it? a large degree, we are. Yeah, well said, Lindsay. 
Yeah. I do remember another major transition in my life. It was actually divorce where I said Mm. often, I said, I feel like I've jumped off a cliff and I'm not sure where I'm going to land, but I know I'm going to land on my feet. So just having that sense of knowing that I was going to be okay in spite of all of the unknowns, you know, in allowing that space between after jumping and then (laughs) finding my footing um, where I no longer actually said that anymore. That was kind of my transition period. So I love that analogy around change and transition. Well, that's something else that, that Debbie and I share in common too, is that unfortunate situation of divorce. And it does feel like all the, the, the processes that we talked about that happened in the transition of having to let go and feeling some kind of way about that and wondering what, you know, if that other person is going to actually show up, I'm not talking about relationally, but if that other place is actually going to show up after we've made this deep leap uh, and then to, to walk through that. And I wouldn't sort of wish or hope that on anyone, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it certainly was. Uh, and thank you for bringing that up, Debbie. That was the, um, that was the biggest, yeah, transition. It's just wrought with uncertainty. Yeah. yeah. I think um, giving those distinctions between the change and the event and transition and that action and process is a game changer for me to think through the agency piece of that. that because mm-hmm. so often change feels like it's thrust upon us um, when we can take an active role in that transition. Um, one of the best books I've read in the last couple of years has been Life is in the Transitions. It's called Life is in the Transitions. Um, And it's all about the fact that we try to avoid them, but we're all either about to have a transition in the middle of a transition or coming out of the transition at like 90% of our lives. Um, And so how do we embrace that process, become an active participant in it, and like Debbie was saying, learn in the midst of it and not try to do, just be (laughs) sometimes. Uh, It's not always my favorite. So, Yeah. This conversation has been so good. I feel like we probably need to have a part two in a couple of months uh, just to continue on these topics and and dive into so many felt needs that we're feeling in this time. Leadership feels really uncertain, but it also feels like we're on a precipice, which is why I love that Onsite is starting to get into the leadership space more um, and lead the way and create a space for people to connect with themselves and become better leaders by becoming better humans. So, yeah. Love it. Lindsay? I was thinking maybe it's an every Friday segment type thing, you know, <laughs> leadership <laughs> in Friday with Dr. Ed and Debbie. Right, yeah. right, right. Perfect. A spinoff well, podcast, something. Uh, exactly. Let's, let's continue to explore that idea, right? Yeah. Be so it's fun. been great. Thanks for the opportunity, y'all. It's always good to be with you. I know. So good to see you. Thanks for building out my uh, reading list as well. So I appreciate that. Yeah, this has been wonderful, guys. Thanks so much. Looking forward to the next one. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 
7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.